0: Hello, and welcome to the NFT Meta Jungle. I am Emma, a.k.a. Nifty Meta Girl, and in today's episode, we have a great conversation with National Geographic photographer Aaron Huey. Uh, Aaron has been a National Geographic photographer for several decades. In addition to his um, career there, he's also the founder of Amplifier Art and a Stanford School Global Ambassador. We touched on on a few topics related to these two endeavors um, and so much more in this great conversation. Um, But we also get to kind of go back to the beginning of Aaron's career and learn about um, his beginnings and about a new project that will be debuting in the NFT space. Uh, So this is a really great conversation. Um, Hope you enjoy. As many in the room already know, um, Erin is a National Geographic photographer, um, but also so many more accomplishments and very interesting um, details in your your background, and your history. Um, But I know you and I first met um, at Paris Photo a few months ago. Knowing what that experience was like hearing you speak there, I knew that getting to have a space with you and to talk about more broadly about your background, your experience, your, you know, everything that you've done in your career would just be a wonderful opportunity but you've always seemed to have this interest or at least it appears for the art to create art you know to be involved artistically but also to be immersed in culture and learning about people and and to really have that strong um connection with people and being able to tell those stories Um, so what could we kind of start there at the beginning like maybe how you first got um connected with being able to tell a story and capture it it's
1: a very very particular story it you know it was i That One community, one group of people, uh, one set of journeys was the foundation for everything that I have ever done since then. Um, I was a a backpacking kid traveling all over Asia in really crazy places. And I ended up in Damascus, Syria, uh, and talking to people like you do in a tea house in Damascus. Um, I met a German linguist who had been doing studies in this really high mountain region in the Georgian Caucasus and he said people still lived there in 12th century towers and spoke a language that had never been written and they were in the valley was surrounded by 15 to 17,000 foot peaks and there were no guidebooks and there was very little documentation and that I lit up and I he drew me a map um on a napkin I transferred it in my journal and 2 days later I was on the road you know back through Syria through eastern Turkey and into Georgia to try to find um, this place called Svanetia. Um, and it was it was somewhat dangerous at the, at the time because uh, Russia in the previous years had, had um, taken Abkhazia and taken it away from Georgia. Uh, and I had to cross right by the Abkhazian border. Um, there were, you know, a lot of incursions into the, into the north of Georgia. And so when I got on the bus and I was heading into the mountains, um, someone turned around and asked me where I was going because it was a dangerous place to be for a backpacking kid and uh, I just said I was going to camp at, at the end of the road when the bus stopped and they said I know you're not you're gonna go with my cousin um, and you're gonna stay with him for a night so that I can prepare everybody for your arrival and then you're gonna come and meet me the next day and so uh, I got off the bus with the cousin um, nobody spoke English they put me in a bed with grandpa and all the cousins that night which uh, was a very cultural experience because everybody slept in the same beds um, and, uh, the next day they delivered me to the wedding event of the eldest daughter of a prominent family in that village of the Pilpani family, Katuna Pilpani's wedding. And they got me drunk and they had me dance. And, um, by morning they had kind of adopted me and asked me to stay, um, and over the next two years, I, I returned again and again uh, to this family that became my family. And I, I fell in love with, with the people, with the language, with the, with the songs of this place. Um, and over those couple of years, it, I came to understand what it meant to document an entire people and culture um, through that lens, through that, like, that heart lens where it wasn't just a topic, you know, that was like family um, who I loved. And, you know, by year three, I was like, this is, this is what I will do with my life. And I went back, especially on that third journey in 2000 with lots and lots of film, um, you know, and it became my first body of work called The Children of the Sun. And I think it still stands today. And I'm going through all those archives right now, every frame, because in those frames, I get to see the whole journey of like how I learned and like how I found the scene and how I fell in love with that, that scene and moved through the moments until I found the frame. Um, and that's, that's what everything stands on, that body of work. And, and every story after that, I think, had that level of commitment to it where I, like, I didn't want to do a short story. I didn't want to do a couple of days. I wanted to be consumed. And so like the next project after that, I walked across America. I walked from San Diego to New York City. Uh, 3,349 3, miles in 154 days, you know, totally consumed. And then even within the Nat Geo assignments that I'm doing, even when it's, quote, just like an assignment, I kind of demand to be totally consumed. You know, the projects last a year, two years. Some of them are the completion of, like, maybe something that started with us over six years, and then we go and do another couple years for the magazine. Um, so that was a very long... Story explaining the beginnings, but everything stems from there
2: so um when you went to this wedding of their oldest daughter, yes, and got drunk mm-hmm. and you woke up the next really realized they were your family, it wasn't because you were now married to their oldest daughter, was it? No, it was
1: not. There was a really cute daughter there though that was not getting married that night, but no, I was not yet I was not married to any of the daughters, ultimately. Yeah. I I
2: assume not. I just wanted to reply.
1: <laughs> no, I do have a really good wedding story though. I I married my wife uh Kristen um in Afghanistan in a tank graveyard outside of Kabul and we were married by um the New Yorker journalist John Lee Anderson who does a lot of the who had done a lot of the big war reporting for the New Yorker. Um he and I had just come back from an assignment in the uh, poppy fields of southern Afghanistan were almost killed and uh, and my revelation at the moment of imminent death was that I'd really fucked up by stringing this woman along for so long, and that if I survived that when I, when I got out of the ambush is this four and a half hour rolling ambush that that I would go back to Kabul and marry my wife, who was working there at the time um, and uh, and I didn't die. And uh, so I went back to Kabul and got married on a tank.
2: That is incredible. There's really good photos. (laughs) It's the
1: coolest wedding photo ever. So I really love that one. I'll have to post that one someday.
2: Yeah, I definitely can't wait to see that one.
0: Yes, that is absolutely incredible and um, just a part of the adventure along the way. But I guess those moments where you realize that you need to, yeah, move forward and and take things seriously. Yeah, and
1: And I was definitely not thinking about photos. I remember through through that whole ambush being like, fuck this $500 a day, day rate. This is not worth 500 bucks. Um, I don't care about this story and I don't care about the New Yorker magazine. I just don't want to die here. I want to get back to my wife. (laughs) So that, that put photo stories in perspective too, that ultimately put, you know, put photo stories in their own place.
0: I was going to say those opportunities where you're, um, you know, life and death situations, that's something that not everyone experiences, but I'm sure that they put things, um, set the the priority for life and really let you um, think about what's important um, and those things that you may not be as passionate about. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I have shared several of the images um, you have shared um, from the beginning um, at the top. So if anyone would like to scroll through, um, please do. These are just absolutely incredible images. And it's so amazing to have such a formative time in your life um, documented and captured. Um, It's really amazing for us to be able to look back through those.
1: Yeah. I'm excited to share more from, from that, from that first film because it, it's like it shows the learning process, um, and I do plan on sharing like everything, like the the full nakedness of learning, which is very much in the spirit of uh, of kind of how like Nat Geo assignments work. It's the only magazine where the editor gets to see every frame, and they see every frame unedited. So, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of images, um, and you don't get to do any tricks, and you don't get to like make everything pretty the way you want it in its raw state, it has to be, it's good or not good. And they see everything, every mistake and every, every win and every loss. Um, and so I'm doing kind of the same thing with this first body of work is like looking at the entirety of the learning process and all the mistakes, um, all the bad frames and all the best frames and how I arrived at the, be- the best frames.
0: That is just amazing, and it's been great to see that, that journey and that process along the way, and I can't wait to continue seeing more of that process as you're delving in um, to, this, to this archive and to the previous experiences. Um, and I, we can definitely continue on the journey. I did want to mention to those listening, um, if you have questions and would like to you know, kind of participate in, um, in the conversation, if you would please um, put your comments in the speech bubble there at the bottom of the space. Um, we'll be able to review those. And also, if you have questions for Aaron, please um, share those there. And um, I know we're on a bit of a time schedule today, so it'll help us kind of fit that in. Um, and I wanted to say hi to Ruben Wu. I did go ahead and send you an invite. If you'd like to come up, Ruben, you're welcome to do so. But um, with those little things taken care of, let's continue on to talking about the journey as we're um, uh, walking across the United States and maybe what the, um, the presence was um, there as well, like the the process and what, how you ended up, um, getting started on that journey and that trek.
1: Mm, Yeah. How did that one start? Uh, it didn't start with the idea of photos. I, I was like a cross country runner in high school. And I think I just had this idea that I wanted to try to run across country and my coach told me I'd really mess up my knees and I shouldn't try it. And so I didn't think about it again, but I, I did ultimately land on walking and, uh, I just, I wanted something impossible. I wanted something that I couldn't see the end of so that I, it was an exercise in presence because if you, if, if when you do something that big and you can't, and there, there is no end because it's, you can't see it, then it forces you into a completely different headspace. Um, And I, you know, I was reading a lot of Joseph Campbell at the time and, you know, the, the journey into the belly of the whale and the dark woods and, you know, the great journey of, of all adventurers into, into the unknown and the ultimate unknown was going into a, a, into the kind of journey where I kind of didn't know where the next day would be. And I certainly couldn't know what the end was going to be like, because I also didn't have a route planned. I, I started in Encinitas, California on moonlight beach, and I knew I was going to end in New York city, but there were no, there was no other route planned and I was just going to live day to day on the advice of people that I met in cafes and to tell me the way. Um, So it was was a, a project of faith. It was like, it was a project of surrender. And I learned a different thing in that project than Svanedia. Svanedia was before it. And that's where I learned how to tell the kind of story where I fall in love and I go return for years and years and years and I become part of people's families. On the walk, I learned how to have a kind of interaction with individuals, even if I was going to only know them for thirty minutes or two hours or one day, where I could go very, very deep and establish trust, and have uh, and and have those kind of conversations that that had value and and create trust and make images that showed that trust. So, on that walk, uh, I made a mostly a body of portraits of people and they were really the strangers that I met and some of them did feel a tiny bit like family but there's only so much family you can get in a two-hour meeting at a cafe but um, I learned how to interact with very very large numbers of strangers um, and so it honed a different part of my journalistic mind and process
0: And that is, you had mentioned that you um, t- took this, took on this, you know, as kind of a, an opportunity to learn more, you know, about yourself and do something that you were basically told that you couldn't do. Um, and as the journey continued, um, you know, was this something that you were creating for yourself or were you creating for an actual organization? Did you have kind of the end goal or was no, it more so to just learn about what was happening along the way? That
1: was what was really special about it. There was not a, a, a product in mind and nobody had assigned me and thank god there was no social media would have fucked the whole thing up for sure (laughs) if i had been because i to have that awareness where everything had to be a product and like you know tens of thousands of people are watching everything you're doing or hundreds of thousands of people are watching everything i did have like a super old school website um where i like for family and for friends and for people that wanted to watch it so i would do like blog posts but it, th- nothing was driven by the need to please an audience or create product for sale. Um, and I was, well, I couldn't carry that much, so I wasn't shooting that much. I shot about one roll a day, and I shot slide film on a Leica M6 with a 35-millimeter lens. And I would send the film in you know, from the road to get developed, and it would get sent to my friend Drew, who would scan it and help make selects, and then send those files to my dad and my dad would help put him into a like a really old school website and I would sometimes write uh, journal entries from libraries as I traveled um, but I didn't you know there were cell phones at the time there were flip phones but I did not take a telephone on this trip it was just me and for context I think I assume I'm making the assumption people know what was happening here I was walking with a with a a giant husky malamute wolf mix named Cosmo this beautiful dog that was a year and a half old and Cosmo pulled a dog cart on wheels that had like cut out flames on the sides. Um, And inside of it was dog food and like a tent and minimal supplies. It was really easy to pull. She was a sled dog. You pull it with two fingers and I carried a backpack Um, and we had no phone. Um, We just, we just walked on the side of the road for five months. Um, And because we were on the side of the road and had a dog cart, Man, we had to actually really walk on highways. We weren't walking on trails. This wasn't like the Pacific Crest Trail kind of scenario. This was like us walking on back roads um, for, you know, 3,400 miles um, and sleeping on the side of the roads. Um, And then, you know, sleeping in people's homes, especially like as we came into communities where people would meet us at a gas station and ask what was happening, they would fall in love with the story, It would kind of blow their mind, and they would ask if we would come home with them or... You know, they call their cousin in the next town and say, you're gonna go stay with my cousin, Bill, you know, in the next town, he'll be waiting for you. Um, and we ended up only spending, I, I spent $250 in five months because nobody would let me buy anything. Um, because people saw in that journey, something they wanted to do themselves, but that they couldn't, like people would pull over on the side of the road and, and ask what you're we doing, because we looked like a crazy circus performance but really clean like that was the circ the the key was and i like cowboy hat on clean clothes but i had this dog pulling this dog cart with like cut out flames on the sides so they knew i wasn't hitchhiking um because i wasn't trying to get anything i didn't have a thumb out and i think they just had to know what was happening so people all over the place would pull over totally breaking the normal rules like you don't pull over on the side of the road and talk to a stranger but something about the formula of it people felt like they had to know what was happening and I looked safe enough. So they'd pull over and ask what we were doing. And I, I would say, well, we're walking to New York city and people would often would say, I wish I could go with you, but can't, I've got kids and a job. Can, can you take, take this 20 bucks or take this 50 bucks or here's something, you know, some snacks from in my car, here's a beer. And I wish I could be with you. Um, and we walk on, uh, Yeah,
0: that is so incredible so incredible and to be able to interact with people on such a a, you know an intimate but yet um, you know just person to person we don't do that as often I think with social media and it is amazing to be connecting with people um, at such an interesting um, level playing field but also with that intrigue Um, uh, and a question comes to mind do you think that it would be this that interaction would be possible do you think that that experience would be similar today or do you think that there was something that has changed over time yeah if
1: you didn't take yourself phone and if you weren't trying to make it a story for instagram for sure um if you weren't trying to tweet about every freaking part of it like i know that helps sell stuff but i think it kills it kills journeys and it kills adventure and it like sucks the spirit out of things um i think it's definitely possible like that kind of like faith and surrender to a journey like it's possible everywhere. It's possible in your own town. Like I think about, you know, a lot of my bodies of work were just, you know, in the American West, the places closest to us. Like there are stories down the street that from your own house that can be like the greatest adventure you've ever known. You don't have to travel to to Asia or to some super exotic looking location to find that, um, you know, that produces a, you know, maybe a pretty image but often a superficial image
2: so yeah totally possible so was there any scary situations on that trip did you ever like actually get scared yeah
1: i was scared really scared for the first thousand miles i was super scared um it went it went in different kinds of ways like there was physical pain that really scared me i had i had not prepared so i I wasn't like a a person who I wasn't a person who had like been like working up to this physically. I hadn't been like walking every day twenty miles, and I got dropped off at the Pacific Ocean and I started walking thirty mile days. I was walking you know sometimes eighteen miles sometimes thirty five miles but I essentially averaged like thirty miles a day and it started to mess up my Achilles tendons really bad like almost immediately. And as I walked into Arizona, I, I really thought I was going to have to give up the walk. I ended up switching shoes and it, and it helped. But there were all kinds of things that happened with physical pain or I got left. Um, someone had to take Cosmo, my dog, when I walked across Southern California in the Chocolate Mountain Gunnery Range, deep in the desert there, um, because it was just too dangerous with all the big packs of roving coyotes. So I was on my own through that part and they were going to bring Cosmo in the dog cart to the other side of the desert. they were supposed to bring me water and they didn't bring the water. And I ran out of water like in like the, one of the most isolated parts of the Southern California deserts in a place where no one lived. And I got really, really scared. And I was like trying to like cut open palm trees and searching maps for wells that were dry or filled with dead animals and stuff. And, uh, I ended up making it obviously, but that was definitely one of the scarier moments for just the unknown of my own safety. And then like, as I got into Arizona and further, the reality of being on the side of the road and having semis go by at 75 miles an hour, like, and missing my body by like a foot and a half was really scary. Um, Through that whole part, I started also developing really bad blisters and I got, I don't know if anybody here has ever had triple blisters. I got a blister in a blister in a blister. So like a, Blister pops and dries, and then another one forms in the bottom. And the blisters are so big that that one can dry, and and a third one forms in the bottom of that second pit. It's pretty gnarly. Um, so I was in that particular situation with my feet as I walked into Santa Fe, um, which is where I had started. Um, I was living in Santa Fe at the time, so I'd kind of done this full circle at about exactly a thousand miles. And when I walked into Santa Fe, I went to see a concert of my girlfriend who was there. She was in a band called the Cold Cold Bitches. And they were playing that night. And they played, I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more for you. And I cried and I was so happy. And then after the show, she broke up with me. And then I cried for like three days straight. And then um, I was, because I, and, and but when I walked out of Santa Fe at mile 1000, without the girl and without all those stories that I could carry, like I'd been kind of carrying the story of her and like us and all these ideas for like a thousand miles. As soon as that was broken and there was nothing else to carry, then I was actually like really on my own and really present. And what opened up in front of me after Santa Fe was more and more like an awakening to like being really present. And I felt completely invincible when I walked out of Santa Fe I walked ten thirty mile days in a row without any rest. I mean, I would sleep, but i I didn't have any days off. I walked three hundred straight miles with just like sleeping at night, and I felt like a like a machine. I felt like a a physical monster i could i felt invincible, like maybe what Olympic athletes feel at a certain level of like their bodies becoming in that kind of form and I've never known anything like that again in my life um and I came into a place of fearlessness in that middle period, you know, as I walked further and I didn't look over my shoulders anymore. And I, I didn't look to see if the semi was going to hit me. I had like a a totally new kind of faith that was like really honed and it started to manifest then I think in how I talked to people. And then it started to manifest in the images that I made of them because it created, I, I spoke in a way that created a new kind of interaction. Um, And so that trip was really the trip that taught me how to like make portraits and interact with people here and people close to me uh, for when I couldn't do like eight year long journeys or three year long journeys in exotic valleys.
0: That is some incredible on-the-job on the, on the job training or just out-in-the-field training. Um, but you've also, I'm sure, gained a confidence that couldn't have been achieved otherwise. Um, it's really interesting to hear how that impacted your, you know, just your, your future and your viewpoint and being able to see, um, you know, probably gaining your kind of your artistic vision, what this, even deepened that ability of defining what you wanted to tell a story about.
1: Yeah, and it, and it did, I will say, it did all come crashing down at a certain point (laughs) because the story is not just like some trajectory of enlightenment for sure. Um, I like uh, I was able to have that presence because I wasn't looking for the end. But when I got to like Bloomington, Indiana, I was staying in a home with someone resting and I looked at the maps and I kind of, I knew at that point exactly how much distance I could cover. And I started kind of like drawing it out. I was like, okay, one day, two days. And I, on the map, I could see exactly how many days it was going to take And at the moment I reached the end of the map with my little like point to point, I was like, Oh fuck, it's over. And all of a sudden I could see the end. And then I was like, why do I still have to do this? I already know I can do it, but now I have to still walk it. (laughs) So it actually got really hard again. Then like the physical pain came back and it just, a lot of the struggles, like the ideas of like, Oh shit, I'm going to have to go back into the world and make product. I'm going to have to go pay for things It's not all magic. It's not all perfect presence. I got to go like figure how to make a living. Like I got to go, you know, back to all the things, the things that we all do every day. And I had to reprocess the entire end of the walk, like, and and reinvent it in a way. And and so it did become really about that working. The last 1500 miles became about the working process with everybody I met. Um, And like an exercise in how I carried myself and, and in communication, you know, not in the perfect presence, because that's a really hard place to find. Right. And I can't say that I really find that very often anymore. Cause I don't, I can't get as, as like, can't walk, I can't afford a thousand miles of walking to get to it right now.
2: <laughs> but yeah. So that's yeah. that state of like fearlessness and confidence and, you know, all the baggage being dropped and just being able to live in that moment. Is that something that you search for on all your projects and every assignment? Is that like something that you're continuously looking for that almost like euphoria that you have that, that, that state that you can be in for just a little bit of time?
1: Yeah. And I think it can come in pieces all the time. That one just happened to be a really long, long chunk of it. Like it, I think it comes with like a kind of surrender, Like when you like, and sometimes it's like surrendering into the love of a place and just like letting go of the product concept and just being there. And uh, that's hard to do in a product driven world now. Um, But yeah, it's like every time I find the poetry in a story and lose myself, you know, and sometimes it can just be like a, a miniature piece of it. Like on my, assignment in bears years for national graphic i would go do like 18 mile canyon hikes and sometimes it comes in the middle of an 18 mile canyon hike with like the joy of like discovery and of like that physical effort and detachment. where yeah i i think we all find it when we do these like big big journeys
2: and then when you when you do find that do you find afterwards, when you're looking back at like your work, you're going through your archive and you remember when you took the a particular photo and what state of mind you were in at that time? Can you see it in the artwork? Can you see it in the photography and the the work? Like basically, the state of mind you were in um, when you took it.
1: I, I think I can see it, like especially right now, because I'm so deep in this archiving project of the first film. I can see it in moments there because a lot of those images, they occupy a different kind of space for me where they were like, not like photojournalism, some of them, but they were, they just felt like, like poetry. And I think in those most poetic images, um, I feel like I can see that I am, am immersed in a kind of, in, in like a texture of the place. Like, and I can, you know, I literally can hear the songs and, and remember what it felt like to be there. Um,
2: And then, so I I know, I think, I think you'd said at one point about, you know, when you're on an assignment Mm -hmm. and um, you're, you're doing something for, you know, a particular story and you're, 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 you're being paid to, to, to find and tell that story. But, not always your the work that means the most to you is what actually gets published um sometimes there's other pieces that are really meaningful to you personally that may not be um as much a part of the story or telling the part of the story that the publication wants oh yeah
1: absolutely is that
2: something yeah. that happens a lot and then do you really do you think that the whole you know web3 nft marketplace helps maybe in being able to be able to to do something with those pieces that are really meaningful to you that may have been not exactly what the story was about so they didn't get published or used in the in the past by the publication. Oh,
1: absolutely. Um I am super excited to explore that potential within this space. Um for sure when we do editorial assignments even the best ones in the world the art is is most more often than not stripped out of the final stories because the constraints of the editorial vehicle means that a certain amount of images have to go in that like explain everything very clearly and can't be repetitive and have to be in a lot of ways really obvious and in the best of stories you get the the poetic photos do that and the photo editor and the director of photography has that same vision and it carries through the piece, but I don't count on that anymore. Um, I, I always feel like, like the stories ultimately are too flat and to have those extra dimensions, like I need layers and layers and layers of, of what it felt like for me or what the people want conveyed as part of that story because sometimes what the magazine wants conveyed and what like a community wants conveyed are not on the same page. And so that means one needs to attach like community storytelling projects, um, all kinds of new distribution models of like how the community itself tells its story. Um, photographs of mine from the pieces that aren't so obvious. And so, yeah, I think a lot of the experiments that I will do and, and the way that I'll share my work in the in in this space will be telling those stories and showing that process that I couldn't do with editorial publications because it's also not their job. The editorial publications have their own duty. Their duties to like tell the story and compress it down for the most people to understand in a lot of ways. And yeah, I think there's an opportunity for a whole new kind of art and distribution in this space.
2: Yeah, that, that's, that really excites me because I'm, I'm a collector that loves the story. I love the backstory. I want the the history I want to know what the um, the artist was thinking and feeling and what motivated um, the creation of that piece. And I, I love the idea of being able to, you know, obviously I like collecting things that have been published, but I love the idea of collecting things that weren't published, but that were really meaningful and that were really part of, you know, a different story even um, that's something that meant more to to you. So, it's really cool. I I love hearing it. Yeah. I got excited when I, um, I saw your, the little small video you posted of you, um, you know, going through an album with all that film Yeah, and, um, just seeing about what's there and, um, what it means to you. And, uh, it's really, it's really exciting.
0: Yeah.
1: I think one of my challenges will be how to like, not overwhelm with the sheer amount of stories and things that I want to share because, (laughs) but I know that I don't want to be a person putting out, you know, just single images um, because ultimately the story is told through larger bodies of work, not through a whole bunch of words with one picture. Um, Yeah.
0: That is an interesting detail. Go ahead, Alpha. I didn't mean to cut you off.
2: No, I was just going to say it's, it's definitely, um, there's all different ways to, to go about something, but a large body of work where you're, you're telling a, a cohesive story and um, you can lay it out in a way that that whole story is told through that body of work is really, really exciting. And it's something that's really, um, it's fun and, and, and neat to see um, from a collector perspective. Um, yeah. I love just seeing things that have a purpose, that there's a reason behind it. And um, that's, it excites me. So wh- whatever you're going to do in the future and the um, meaning that there is behind it, story behind it, it's really, really exciting that you you actually have, you know, a purpose for what you were doing. And even at the time you were, you were just exploring maybe um, yourself and learning. Well, being able to look at that in retrospective and see, you know, a journey and a story unfolding and really maybe, you know, the reason that you've gone to where you've gotten um in life and and why you're doing what you do right now and how you look at things that's really cool and it's it's a uh, it's exciting to be um, somebody that is in the space that can can collect some of that work so yeah thank you I, I thank you for you. helping
1: enable that i appreciate it because i think you know within the editorial world the, a lot of the funding bodies that allowed this kind of work to happen are they're they're going away they're 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 just trying to see how efficient they can get and they're turning to video and fast content and TikToks. and uh we new- need new funding models for how to build bodies of work like this in the future and how to make um audiences and followers and uh collectors uh, all a part of you know a new kind of model of assignment almost if if with the right kind of support from communities, um, new bodies work like this can be co-created and funded with with an entirely new model.
2: Yeah, that's something that's definitely, um, really exciting about web three. So we see this in the, you know, in the physical world, we see this movement towards everything's video. We see a, a movement, you know, away from print and, um, that has me a little bit fearful, Mm -hmm. like what's going to happen to documentary photography, um, who is going to fund this. And it's great that web three is there's opportunities there. I think for new models for funding this work, because the work needs to continue. Um, you know, there's been so many important stories that have been told through documentary photography that would never have been told otherwise. Yeah. wouldn't know about, there's there's, you know, cultures that have been um that we know about only because of documentary photography and they're being preserved that way. And so um yeah, the the avenues and opportunities that exist within web three to be able to continue that and to um keep that going yeah. is really exciting. And and I
1: do love like using all the forms of media. I definitely don't have anything against video. I actually am trying to find more and more and more ways to create and integrate it because it often brings the human voice into stories where it's lacking. But if we get too down that road and stop funding um, the, the length of assignments and, and of journeys that make real moments, that's where we're in danger. Because I think to arrive at true moments, whether it's like uh, like a moment in humanity that like, like of people interacting or, or a moment of like that you arrive at within a scene in a landscape. True moments take huge investments of time, um, and those investments are going down. And I'm, I'm afraid we will, if we will have less moments if we are not funded in, you know, in places like National Geographic. If the assignments go from sixty days to twelve days, you're gonna have a lot of portraits because they're fast, and you're gonna have a lot of landscapes because you can get lucky because they're kind of easy sometimes. What you're going to start lacking is like real moments. The moments won't be there because they take a huge investment.
2: Yeah, 100%. I've got a, in fact, I'm holding my hand right now. I have a um, heritage auction. Um, uh, it's a little photographs. They have a photographs auction coming up. And on the front of it is um, Steve McCurry's Afghan Girl. Yeah,
1: I got and- one hanging in my office right here. I was it I was Steve McCurry's yeah, so, coffee boy.
2: It was the oh, only amazing. only
1: photographic job I've ever had. Um Steve McCurry saw my sponnetia work. Um, and somebody had shown it to him while I was like applying to go get a master's in photography, because I was like, I don't know how to do this. How am I gonna make a living doing this? And somebody showed it to Steve, and I was almost completely done with my application and like a guaranteed scholarship to do one of the big photo schools. And Steve saw it and said, don't go to college, come work for me in New York. And I, I went and I was kind of like a glorified coffee boy for three months in Steve's office. But in the process, I, I, you know, I looked through every frame he'd ever shot in his entire life. Whenever he'd leave town, I'd pull open all the drawers, look at every single frame. I learned so much about light and about interacting with people. And that was my first and last photo job, kind of like working for somebody or an entity like that and uh i still have a relationship with steve to
2: this day i still i just talked to him like a week ago yeah that is that's incredible i didn't yeah. know that that's okay. amazing so yeah like to me like that photo i think the world's a better place because that photo exists mm-hmm. i i honestly believe that and, and i think there's a whole <laughs> there's so many photos, um, like that. And it's, um, so important that it continues and that people are able to go and get these really, really meaningful work. That's going to like that. When you see it, you see that moment and it has a impact on the way you feel about things. Um, that's yeah. really powerful, and we we've got to have that. Game.
1: There's an, uh, I heard a story about Steve when we were at the National Geographic seminar where all the, the divers gather every year. A few weeks ago, Ruben was there; a bunch of us were all there. You know, Steve's got some of his own controversy in his past, but somebody told me it was George Steimatz told me um, as we were walking back um, to the headquarters one day that. Steve's philosophy was like, he didn't like the magazine. If the magazine gave him 30 days of pay, he can go for 30 days and like keep that money as his day rate and like put it in the bank. He would spend every single dollar he was given to extend his trip and stay as long as he wanted. And to like, just invest, he invested every single dollar. He got back into more time in the field to get to more moments and to make more pictures He was, was not saving the money. Like he didn't say, okay, I've got an expenses budget. That'll pay for a certain amount of days. And I got the rest of the money I'll save. He didn't save the money. He just invested in time to get the moment.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. And that's one of the things um, that's so incredible about really, really good photography is you can see that passion. And that's what it's really about. It's it's driven by passion. And it's that same passion that would have somebody, um, you know, show up in the mountains in Georgia or take a walk across the U.S. You don't you don't do that unless you're a very passionate person. And then that passion shows in, and in, in the work. Well, thank you.
0: I definitely echo that, Alpha. And, and I was curious, too, Erin, with the process of curating, you know, you have experience in all different types of medium and sharing stories in different formats and, you know, from a book to now curating, you know, and thinking about different stories you want to bring into the NFT space. Um, is that process different? Uh,
1: the process for what to bring into the, to the NFT space?
0: And and thinking about how the images are going to tell the story and how you want to go through that process.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in a lot of those first experiments right now, so I guess we'll see how how well they are engaged as I start to release some of this work. Um, and I'm working in so many kinds of mediums right now that it'll be interesting to see how each one does. Like I, my first NFTs and a lot of the first stuff that I released were actually all of my work from inside of metaverse worlds. You know, my first show in this space was a solo show in the uh, museum of contemporary digital art inside of Decentraland. And it was of photographs of the edges of metaverse worlds um, and of a series of performances that I was doing, jumping off the edges of of metaverse worlds. Um, And so this space was a logical place to, to share and, and, and move images like that because they were certainly not being accepted by my traditional audience that only wanted to see um, postcard pictures. Uh, you know, if you're feeding like a Nat Geo feed, that that ver- that audience of 250 million people, they want to see some really simple stuff. They want to see animals. They want to see sunsets. Want to see some dolphins and pandas. Um, and so they do not want to see Metaverse pictures. Uh, So this was like a really logical space to engage in, in, in exhibitions and sales if I wanted to continue to do that work. Um, Yeah.
0: Well, and I found that to be absolutely fascinating, and and just I was also curious. How did you go about convincing National Geographic to let you to be on assignment to explore the metaverse? Was that something that they were open to, or was did it take a bit of a? Sale? Oh, I have
1: definitely had to do my fancy dance sales pitch. Um, I, I mean, it was kind of in the in the in the ether. It was like I pitched it before Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg uh, renamed his company, essentially which was ridiculous because now everybody in the nagio audience thinks that mark zuckerberg invented the metaverse but it'd be like if he had renamed his company the internet um people don't understand that there have been persistent 3d worlds with social interaction since like 1995 with active worlds and second life you know all the big all the big things that were happening in second life in like 2007 there's just been huge waves of this kind of stuff but It was the way that I talked about it was that like whether the audience cared about it or not or understood it or not, it was like a new country. Like we were essentially looking at a place where hundreds of billions of dollars were being invested. Their kids were already in it for a long time in Minecraft and Roblox and Fortnite. And whether people liked the values of being in digital 3D spaces or not there are hundreds of millions of people in there. And over the next decade, there may be a trillion dollars of investment. And so we're essentially looking at the construction of an entire new world. And it felt like really in a lot of ways, like a duty to understand what that construction zone looked like, what was happening in there, what were people doing. Um, And eventually it led me to like, is there an edge to this place? And so then I became totally obsessed with finding World edges and trying to find tricks to get off the edges and underworlds and beyond barrier fences and in all kinds of stuff like that. So then it, I really geeked out on that part of it, but yeah.
0: Uh, it's so fascinating, and that was part of the presentation that you gave at Paris photo that blew my mind too of seeing the edges of these universe these these spaces that no one has ever seen before, and being able to document them and it's it's just it's amazing yeah. that realm and the expansion yeah the there. Qu-
1: the the prime example of like the the space that had never been seen was I got admin access to a minecraft server um. And I went beyond the barrier fence that users have to stop at it, like the 30 millionth block and beyond the, beyond the barrier fence, as I like pierced down through the world and moved through it, like let's say looking towards a sunrise or a sunset in the far distance, the seed of the world was rendering new tunnels and lava chambers and all this kind of stuff for the very first time. And so what I was seeing had never been like put into code and, and visualized until that moment that I was moving through new space. And so for the first time, I had found a place where I could photograph the birth of metaverse space. Um, and I it was it was amazing. Um and eventually I found ways to move beyond even where the seed was building into like the infinite like edge of the world that was just a wrapper of infinite sunrise and sunset and stars, um, where there was no grounding anymore. Uh, so that was one of my favorites, but that's a really hard one to deliver to a Nat Geo audience. They're like, they they all want me to go back to photographing, um, sunsets in Svanedia so desperately. Um, but I, like all of my projects are, our our media experiments in a lot of ways and like i'm like a method actor like if i'm gonna do if i'm gonna go into this kind of work in like quote metaverse spaces in the spatial web i'm gonna go all the way i'm gonna let it own me i'm gonna go like deeper than i can find anyone going um because that's true to like how this work goes and maybe i will go back to photographing some sunsets somewhere but right now i'm i'm quite deep in that Um, I'm quite deep into a project on scanning electron microscopes. I got access to the world's smallest scanning electron microscope that was sent up to the International Space Station, and I had it in my backyard for two months. And um, I spent 150 hours making images without light um, using electrons of 100-year-old microfossils that are smaller than a speck of dust um and i totally got lost in that it owned me it completely owned me until the second i let go of the device like my wife was begging me to send it away because it was taking me away from my family from all the jobs i was supposed to be doing because <laughs> all i wanted to do was like be in that micro scale like it was like having the web telescope in reverse you know the the, the scale to go infinitely in to see the intricate details of interlocked skeletons, you know, with such beautiful detail, I was photographing radiolarians, um, or which were like the their microplankton, and, and all that's left is their skeletons, and finding pairs and and triplets of these skeletons interlocked in a kind of like death dance embrace as their skeletons like remet and were like coupled through all the spines that attach them to each other, um. So yeah, I I get lost in all these stories. Um, you know, I, I haven't even shared any of that. I've had that project done for a while. I'll probably start sharing some of that in the coming weeks because I think I did a TikTok for Nat Geo that'll come out in a couple of weeks about using that device with my son Hawkeye because we started that project together. Started it with my twelve-year-old.
2: I'm just gonna um go out go out on a limb and um make a prediction that. Sometime in um, probably not that far off future, you're going to be an advisor to uh, Steven Spielberg <laughs> <laughs> because what you're talking about just sounds like a, a great basis for um, all the background for some really crazy and fun movies. Nice. Well, that's,
1: that sounds realistic. I'm, I'm game.
0: Well, and that, that is absolutely fascinating. And I'm, I'm learning that it's, um, you know, having chatting with you about what you're working on or what's coming up, you need to just ask, what are you working on? Because it it exceeds what you would even expect, you know, like that project right there, who would have even guessed that that was a possibility or something you would be able to have, um, you know, right there working on hands-on and, um, mentioning your son, does he enjoy this process as well of storytelling and embracing this adventurous, um, opportunity?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I I let my Hawkeye kind of retired for a while, but we're kind of bringing him back because he's asking to go on assignments again. But, um, my son Hawkeye, um, it's not hot guy. Some people think I'm saying hot guy, which would be a pretty hilarious nickname. Hawkeye, like the eye of a hawk. Hawkeye Huey, um, was the youngest national graphic photographer and started getting assignments at the age of four. Um, because I gave him, um, like a Polaroid style Fuji Instax And started taking him on really crazy road trips around the American West. And uh, I've got boxes and boxes with thousands of Hawkeye's photos. And for a while, Hawkeye Huey was making more money a a year than I was um, when he was like four or five and six, which was pretty funny. Um, But uh, Hawkeye and I began that journey together, uh, not because I was trying to turn him into a photographer, because I wanted him to understand how to engage with people and like how to use a tool like that to open up worlds, you know? And, and I didn't need to take him to some crazy exotic place. Like I wanted him to know how to open up like the unseen world in like Nyland, California, or some rant, any random town that we went through. And, you know, it, it started with me walking him around, you know, like a squatter camp in the desert in California in slab city with some Circus kids that I'd met there one year, and Hawkeye walked around the circle and, at the age of four, you know, shooting polaroids of everybody's faces and laid them out on the ground, and like the joy I saw in everybody sifting through those photos, just like annihilated. It just made like cell phone photography and all that just just disappear. Like I just, I could see that like we needed to go. Really, analog, really, back to like the photography of my own youth of like having a Polaroid, and that physicality created a new kind of interaction, so Hawkeye did this process where he would meet people and talk to them, ask them you know i would I would talk to him about how to how to meet people and how to ask them questions about themselves, and how to ask if he could take a portrait, and then he would take it and he'd give it to him, and he would get this whole interaction uh. And that's what I really wanted to stick with Hawkeye through his life. And we did that for years and years. And we would go do jobs together if people called and said, Do you want to do this? And if we didn't want to, we would say no, because we weren't trying to make it like a profession. I wasn't trying to make him a photographer. I just wanted people to pay for us to go do cool trips together and keep keep making making analog pictures. Um and eventually like, you know, I, I didn't want to turn it into too much of a product. So we started like not really trying and just letting him be a kid in school. Uh, and now he's kind of hes Hawkeye just turned 13. He's much more interested in like engineering and design. and so that's why we we reached out to people about scanning electron microscopes, you know, night photography, underwater photography in uh, nine days, eight days. In eight days, we're going to French Polynesia and I got an underwater camera housing because Hawkeye is really interested in um, underwater photography and we've been getting advised by some of my Nat Geo peers like Christina Mittermeier and Brian Scarry and the best, you know, underwater photographers in the world. And we're taking Hawkeye to learn how to photograph sharks in the atolls of French Poly, French Polynesia, because he just got certified in diving. And maybe he'll want to keep doing it or maybe not, but we're just going to start it as a way to explore a new medium and, and, uh, see where the adventure goes. Maybe in a few years, Hawkeye will be that kid that's got doing the shark thing, or maybe it'll be a one-time thing. And we'll go back to like, you know, astrophotography or scanning electron microscope photography. But uh, really, it's just a way for me to spend more time with him and teach him about like how to engage with the world.
0: That is really incredible. And those those are life skills that um, it's amazing that he's learning and getting to experience at such a young age. Yeah. Um, I, that gives me hope for the future. And my daughter, <laughs> actually, I like my
1: daughter as an example more of like the journey of seeing and learning. In some ways, Juno, who's now seven, is a macro flower photographer. And Juno can reveal kind of in the same way that I was with the scanning electron microscope, universe's inside of like flowers and she does it with whatever we got like a point and shoot macro camera or my cell phone and i am totally in love with juno's photos of the insides of flowers and pollen and like little pieces of flowers as much as i am uh anything else that that i've seen so i'll share that at some point too i'm sure
0: that is so amazing. I love how you incorporate them and give them the opportunity to explore their passion and, and to share those opportunities. That's really, really incredible.
1: Yeah, that's the parents' and job.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, I couldn't agree more, and it's amazing for them to get to have that chance to explore the real, you know, the world around them, um, and document it in such a meaningful way. So that's that's really exciting, and um, can't wait to see as their journey continues. Um, and just a small question with that: Do they interact with social media? I know, with them being at such young ages, um, that may not be something that I'm just curious if that's a platform that they're exploring. Or... No, and
1: I don't want them to. So Hawkeye was never aware of the fact until he became much older that he had, like, I don't know, at one point, a couple hundred, 250,000 followers or something like that. It was really just a, it was a tool that allowed us to keep doing it. And because people, when I made the first picture of him, like with his camera, but he said, we want to see what he's making. And I didn't want to put it in my feed or I couldn't put it in that Geo's feed, which we were feeding at the time um, with my own photos. So I just started a feed an Instagram feed when he was 4 years old with his images and within a week there were like 30,000 followers but I didn't want I didn't want him to see that and think about like if I maybe people want to see this kind of thing or that kind of thing or I didn't want him to think about an audience so it was really just a way of sharing the experience but without I wasn't trying to make him aware of any of that kind of storytelling at all
0: that's really incredible, and I, I respect that a lot. I know that can be a whole new world for um, young ones to to explore, but it's great that they're connected to um, our everyday world and all the wonders that are there as well. Um, and I was curious too, um, kind of circling to you know some of the. Um, traditional work or your early work that you're bringing into the nft space um i know that you've introduced a few one-of-ones with monolith gallery and um you know you've had the opportunity to have one of those shown at scope gallery or at at scope art fair um in miami in december and i was just curious with the process of deciding which images to bring in in that regard and and if those first images had a special meaning to you
1: yeah i've I, I struggle with releasing single images, um, and I have released only a few. I think I've o- only three, and each one is kind of one of the one of the pieces that is the most important from each body of work. But I I don't anticipate I'm going to be doing a lot of individual images like that anymore without the larger context of story. Um, you know, I've you know, Alpha, you bought you know the image that for me embodied like a whole moment in time of the Sherpa world when I was documenting the Sherpas and the avalanche killed 16 Sherpas there and, and the story that ultimately became a story called Sorrow on the Mountain that was about the burden of the Sherpa community and, and the price they pay for guiding Westerners. So that was really like the opening spread in the Nat Geo image and one that really conveyed that mood and feeling of an entire time period. And the same thing was true of another piece that I I launched with Chakai and Monolith of uh, an image that for me defined a whole period of time in Pakistan, traveling um, in Sufi communities throughout Pakistan, and, and a, a much larger body of work there. Um, and then I've I've minted one image from Svanedia, um in color that I think embodies like all of the love and poetry of of all of my follow up journeys you know my first journeys to Svanetia that, that built the base of my photography were 98 99 and 2000 and then National Geographic sent me back with a good budget to do like year and a half of work in 2013 2014 and of that particular body of work um, this one image of Ushguli and the sunset on on Skara on Mount Skara behind Ushguli is really the most special one to me. It's one of the only images that's really ever hung large in my family's home. It was hung in my father's house and the it prints beautifully and it's my kind of the most poetic of those landscape images. I don't consider myself like a a person who really thrives in the landscape photography space, but this is like the one from that body of work in Svanedia that has like my whole heart in it.
0: That is really incredible. I was giving Alpha a second. I was. I didn't want to cut him off. Um, but this image is absolutely incredible. And I'm glad that there was some um, of the footage captured of it showing on the monolith there at scope as well, because um, it's such an impactful image, especially to see it in such a large scale as well.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, also, just because I was talking about Hawkeye and Juno, I put, uh, I've not been paying attention to the the messages in this thread, because I have my my ADHD, will split my brain off in too many directions. But I put in a couple links to, as reference to the Hawkeye stuff and to Juno, um, Hawkeye and Juno's photos to see those that um, they are not posting their uh, their stuff uh, on Twitter. <laughs> but there were there were Instagram accounts for these children.
0: Uh, that's fantastic. Thank you yeah. for sharing because I will definitely check it out. Um, that's I just love that opportunity for them to be able to connect. And I love the process that you're going about as well, being able to let them, you know, let that be there, but not making it something that they have to be super tuned into yeah. or um, aware of. Yeah. That's that's fantastic. Yeah, like Juno's <laughs> already
1: asking, she's like, Dad, when can we go do photo walks? She just, she wants to go on photo walks with me because it's really about, it's about that that hour together where nothing else exists just me and her and whatever we encounter there's no there's no other motives there's no product it's just it's just the walk it's just every moment like present on that walk and that's all she wants like the photos just happen to be a byproduct of that presence
0: that is so special and so incredible Um, and yes especially you know those ages there's being able to capture the what they're experiencing through their eyes and through their just interaction with the world from their perspective is just incredible. Um and that's something that I think we we might not be able to embody the same ourselves as we get older. So um really love that they're able to to capture that and spend that time so authentically.
1: Yeah. Juno is definitely more present than me, uh pretty much every day for sure. <laughs>
0: uh seven is a great age for sure they're exploring so much there well in mentioning the um the speech bubble we do have a couple of questions there um i know julio had mentioned had listed a few for us and i had sent him an invite to come up but i know it's quite late where he is um but he had asked about the toughest photographic challenge and which is your dream story to cover
1: Uh, toughest photographic challenge. I mean, each one is so uniquely difficult in their own rights. Like some assignments, you're risking physical danger. Other ones are very psychological. You know, if like a lot of the work that I've done in communities that are, that have really been historically harmed, carry a kind of, carry a kind of scarring and damage that is is really hard to it's it's very hard to document those ones there's a different kind of suffering than the kind of suffering when you're walking with triple blisters um it's every story has an element of toughest uh you know and when i was covering denali for our national parks issues i had to, you know i spent a month and a half embedding with the most notorious wolf killer and you know in, in in these situations i had to like hear about and see a lot of things that i didn't believe in and i didn't want to see or hear and had to figure out how to like move through absorbing those things uh and not letting it alter my ability to continue to be there and ultimately get the moment cuz i needed a month and a half of being there to get that moment so um that's the toughest challenge sometimes um i think my dream stories are really any time I can get the funding to go as deep as what I'm talking to you all about, like I can find it in a lot of places. It's really finding the funding to create the freedom to do that full investment and surrender. So any, any story I can do in that way is the dream story.
0: I love that. I love that. And as a follow-up, he also asked if there was something that, um, a place you haven't been basically that you are dreaming about that you would, um, that you are curious to explore.
1: Yeah. I want to, and a lot of it I think about is like places I want to explore with my children, like with Hawkeye or Juno. So I want to take Hawkeye to a live volcano for sure. Um, and I have wanted for a very long time to take Hawkeye and Juno and my family to, um, to French Polynesia to this atoll called Fakarava where I had, I had photographed there for Nat Geo like 15 years ago. And I'd always said that I would come back because I needed more time. And I would, maybe I'd come back someday with my family. And so I, I'm doing that next week with Hawkeye and uh, yeah. Places I'm curious to explore right now are often like, you know, with family.
0: And what a wonderful opportunity to get to do that. That's really, really awesome. Um, an amazing too, to bring them along, um, instead of saying one day to actually do that with them while they're, they're remembering it and exploring it in such a unique way. Yeah. And we have one more question, um, from Abraham. Um, he had asked, um, about, um, your idea as a legacy photographer. Do you see, um, what do you, what do you feel is your legacy as a photographer?
1: My legacy. Uh, there's a lot of ways to think about that. I mean, with, with stories at scale, legacy can be like, it can be fairly impactful. It can mean changing laws, you know, Uh, work on the Sherpas and on conditions in Sherpa communities most likely was part of an equation that changed how insurance happens, like and how insurance is given out to Sherpas working for Western expeditions. Um, Work on Bears Ears that I've done over multiple grants from the Nagio Society ultimately went into portfolios of Secretary Deb Hollands and uh, and created most likely new protection for areas around Bears Ears that are under threat for oil and gas leases. So I think there's the level of like impact and legacy of like can one change like the actual shape of the world and, and of events. And that's what that kind of investment can do. If, if, a if any entity, whether it's a community or a publication invests a year and a half of, you know, of work into a topic, that body work can actually change the story of, of, of all of us, of those people, of those communities, of, of government interactions. So that's one cool way uh that's probably what matters most is if we can work on stories that have that level of impact you know i think about my peers like david gutenfelder you know going over and over and over again to the ukraine i think he spent 6 months there last year like the impact the the legacy of of you know david gutenfelder's work and james nocte's work in ukraine is that we don't forget it right um that,
0: so true.
1: So you get to see, like, when people go that far, like, the legacy often becomes very clear. Like, it actually moves the dial. Like, it changes things. It wakes us back up. It keeps things moving. Um, it changes laws. It, like, starts a new movement, or it fuels an existing movement, or it, it like, provides that last piece that makes something possible. Like, the, the biggest projects can do that. And so many of the, the projects we work on, they, like, even if we're not super conscious of it initially or some drivers don't think about it, they're almost always connected to some kind of cause, right? Like, I can't think of an assignment where there was not something that could be funded that was needed in that place. Like, you know, in a story about Bears Ears, it's, you know, there's a whole cause behind it with the, the intertribal coalition and the efforts to, like, expand protection. Or with the Sherpas, it's like, okay, there's a story, but like now what are we going to do about the insurance and like people not being able to pay for their kids' schools or their husband's funeral, right?
0: And that's so true that sometimes we think about the process of capturing those stories to tell the story, but yes, also that additional part of changing, potentially changing um, the future for that group or for the betterment of society that goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm that is so so interesting um and that was a great answer too for um for that question and i appreciate yeah. abraham um mentioning that for us as and well and sometimes it's a, it's a little more and, simple
1: than that sometimes it can just be to wake people up like to like a new idea or to like a new way of seeing or to like or to joy in some small way like not every project can be uh you know a year two years five years 10 years and and have that level of investment but like uh, can that photograph or the photographic story, where, wherever it is, like, wake people up to a new reality? Like, I'm not changing any laws with a story about scanning electron microscope, you know, that I'm making with a scanning electron microscope of, like, you know, 100 million-year-old microfossils, but it may create a kind of wake-up moment of our scale in the universe and may make us rethink kind of in an aha moment, like, what kind of a speck of dust we are like in this larger world.
0: I, that is so true and so inspiring. It's, it's nice to think about us being um, lesser than some oftentimes we feel like we're the focus. So it's a great reminder that there is so much else, so much bigger things out there happening so much bigger than just us.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and um, I wanted to ask too, um, if there was anything else, this has been a wonderful conversation. I know we're getting close to an hour and a half and appreciate your time very much. Is there something else you would like to share with the listeners here that we haven't touched on yet? Woo-wee.
1: I don't know. Where are we going? Well, I've got a busy week cause I'm actually prepping a big drop that will not be photographs. So I have a whole other life as a creative director and i I started a nonprofit called Amplifier. Uh, It's amplifier.org. We build visual campaigns for movements. And we're working on really primarily this year on mental health and well-being, because being in the trenches of of movements since, you know, over the last 10 years of doing this work, the one thing I'm certain of is that we are not going to have any shortage of crises. You know, the climate crisis will continue. There'll be more mass shootings. Next political cycle will be scary as hell. And so we've realized that in addition to working on the individual movements, what we really need to work on is the umbrella over all of them that is our mental health. Like how do we survive in a world that is falling apart? And like, just how do we be okay for our kids and keep things intact? And so I'm working actually with the artist Killer Acid, Rob, um, and we have built a new currency um, to support mental health that's going to drop at some point in the next couple of weeks. I'm, I'm working on that with him tomorrow. So I'll watch for conversations around how we are reframing mental health as wealth, reframing like what real wealth is. Uh, so that's like, so that's a visual campaign. That's a, it's a visual story. It's a, it's visual movement building. It just doesn't happen to be photography. Um, but I'm, like I said, I, I work in a lot of mediums. So.
0: That is so fascinating and something, of course, that touches on, you know, everyone in society. Um, and is that going to be an NFT-based project? It will. Or is yeah, it... we've been working okay, on it for months and months and cool. months. Uh,
1: it has a it has an IRL component because it's literally currency. It's double-sided currency that when you look at it through your phone, um, it's AR activated and it comes to life and animates and it's got sound. And uh, it's a it's a fun project because it's got, like, the best of the – of the, of the digital and the physical and the augmented world. And uh, all our projects ultimately link into uh, free art and free toolkits for anybody. Everything that Amplifier makes um, outside of those like unique sales, like, but all the art, the general art is it's free downloads at high res and it's all always comes with toolkits on how to become parts of, of these movements or, or to do the work that we're talking about.
0: That is incredible. Um, And I know you have a link in your bio. um, So for those that would like to follow along closely with that project, it's easy to find um, the Twitter page for that. Is there other ways that people could get that information if they're curious and following along?
1: Um, Amplifier has not been super active on Twitter, but I'll I'll try to help change that. I kind of have a hard time keeping up with all these streams. But Amplifier.org and Amplifier is probably a little bit more communicative through its instagram channels and through newsletters and and our teacher networks and things like that but um, i will try to surface those and hopefully the algorithm won't hide it from all of you because seems to be hiding everything right now <laughs> so
0: <laughs> so true that is a yeah. fight that everyone's having to to get through um and i had one more question seeing your bio there with the stanford school as a global ambassador um what does that entail
1: Oh, I just got hooked on, on design thinking. I've done three different fellowships at Stanford and, and a lot of them tag into Stanford's D school and into, uh, into design practice that works with, you know, directly with people on empathy and on solving problems through, uh, through design thinking. And so, um, it kind of becomes integrated into a lot of kinds of my work into my creative direction. And, uh, Right now, I've just wrapped up a a fellowship at Stanford Starling Lab, which is working on the future of data integrity for both still images and video, because we have now entered in a world where we don't know what's real or not real anymore because of, you know, because of uh, the speed at which AI is moving. But we've had this problem for a long time with deep fakes and cheap fakes, like a lot of the trickiest disinformation have just been bad Photoshop jobs that that got spread, so... The, the work of Stanford Starling Lab is trying to put um, especially photojournalistic imagery and video directly on chain from like, the moment it's captured in a, in a memory card, um, a series of relationships between that camera card manufacturer to the camera itself into Adobe, you know, in collaboration with Adobe, into Photoshop, so that when it finally appears on the front page of the Washington Post, you can click into it and understand its entire chain of its creation, origin, and any alterations. So you know that it is the real thing that was taken in the real place. And you can see every part of that.
0: That is revolutionary. That's amazing. I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah. <laughs> that is really, really fascinating. Um, and that will help with the provenance um, and make uh yeah change the world in that regard um so you have so many fascinating projects that you're working on and immersed in so um I really appreciate the time of getting to learn all about yeah thank
1: you so much for having me
0: absolutely and I'll see um Alpha do you have anything you would like to ask or share
2: um well no I would just like to say um definitely Aaron I'm super super impressed um with uh, what you're doing and I love like literally I love the fact that you're in Web3 and that you're um, embracing it and I can't wait to see um, what you do and and what you release and I I will say I I love listening to and talking to someone that has so much passion and that um, has so much experience and loves to live life um, it's really, it's like so pleasurable. Um, and I'll, I'll just say one thing, one thing I learned listening today that really struck me, almost like slapped me across the face is that in my life, if I, um, encounter somebody that I really don't like, or maybe they even repulse me, um, I can just tell them to fuck off and walk away with it. You know, it's fine. But in your life, you've had to learn how to be able to interact with that person, in order to be able to still get the story. And if you didn't have that ability, there's stories that wouldn't be told, and that hit me hard. Mm. Just thinking about that, I mean that's that's really really um, poignant because you honing that ability to be able to interact with people and to even have maybe a relationship with people, even people that you don't agree with or that probably I would say maybe repulse you or disgust you in some way with their behavior or actions, but you still are able to interact with them in order to be able to get to the heart of a story and tell that story. And that's, um, that's crazy impressive to me. And uh, I'm going to have to take some time to digest that because I'm sure I could learn a lot from that. Even in my own interactions with people, I,
1: I got to say it's actually so it's it's kind of hard to do without the camera sometimes as deeply and somehow that camera or the assignment or whatever like the you know the desire to get the unfiltered truth and the unbiased like moment like changes the entire mindset and if I wasn't there with that goal and didn't have the camera and I did just meet them it wouldn't be as easy but the camera becomes a like a literal frame that forces me to see through that lens of empathy and you know in its best moments like without bias and accepting wholly what it is that I'm witnessing. Um, but that's it's hard to do that level of witnessing, just walking through the world and having some shitty thing happen. Like, it's really hard to frame it and be like, oh no, as a witness, I'm going to be really present and like not take that on (laughs) because it's not really framed up like that. It's just annoying. Um, The camera does unlock like a new lens to have that empathy and to have that mission of, of of, of, of being more forgiving and like accepting even of that thing that we don't want to see or accept.
2: Yeah, that's a, it's amazing. It's extremely poignant. Um, it's very powerful. I'm gonna I, I, For myself, I'll spend some time digesting that because there has to be uh, ways that I can use just the, that concept and your example to make myself a better person. So yeah. I just want to say thank you for that. That's amazing. And thank you for being here in Web3. Thanks for taking your time today yeah. to uh, talk with us and uh, share that passion. Um, I absolutely love it. Well, thank you for for
1: investing in in me and and giving me your time as well. Yeah.
0: It's been an absolute pleasure, and I'll echo what Alpha said. I'm so glad you're here, but also um, you're just one of those people that's, I'm glad to know that you know all the things that you're doing to help our world be a better place, and gives me hope for our next generation as they're learning how to navigate our space and and hopefully um, understand people and connect. And um, I've just I really enjoyed the opportunity to get to know you better today, and um, I know everyone listening has enjoyed it as well. So thank you again for the time, and and can't wait to see um, all the things that are coming up. And want to invite you anytime you would like to you know share, or um, we can help with spreading that message definitely reach out we'd be more than happy to help
1: excellent thank you so much everybody
0: thank you and with that we'll say thank you to everybody that joined us and hope everyone has a great day and we'll talk again soon bye-bye everybody thank you